Well, let me encourage you to take a copy of God's Word and turn with me to Romans chapter 6. And we're going to be looking this morning at Romans 6, verses 15 to 23. Romans 6, verses 15 to 23, as we continue our sermon series, uh, New Life in Christ. We're going to be spending several more months taking a look at the chapters 5 through 8 in the book of Romans. And today we arrive at Romans chapter 6, verse 15. The Apostle Paul says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, thank you team and congregation for blessing me with that set of praise. Let's uh, once again open our copies of God's word, shall we, to Romans chapter 6. Continue a series on new life in Christ based on Paul's great letter to the Romans, chapters 5 through 8, and once again, as last Sunday, we'll be in chapter 6 of this epistle. Um, many of you probably do not know that uh, this week I tested positive for COVID. Um, it was a bit of a surprise to me. For the first seven days of this uh, light case, I actually thought I just had a cold and not a very bad cold at that. But when somebody I'd been in close contact with tested positive, I thought, well, maybe I ought to get tested. And I did, and surprise, um, it got me. Um, now, I wouldn't be mentioning this personal stuff at all except to set at ease, any who may wonder whether it's safe for me to be here or safe for you to be here. <laughs> well, the CDC says that 10 days after the onset of symptoms, you're no longer contagious and don't need to isolate. This is day 13 for me. Yesterday, I had another test and it was negative. Um, as an extra precaution, I'm not really having any contact with anybody here today. Um, I'm, I'm feeling better, tired, and uh, some of you who have had the virus or know people who have had the virus know that fatigue is uh, typical, and I am experiencing that, but I'm definitely on the mend, and, uh, and I have not changed my mind about COVID. <laughs> um, 
I'm still convinced that media panic, government overreach, and the ruination of our economy are at least as serious as the bug. And uh, I know that our church family has been slandered as careless. Uh, I am still convinced that um, we've done the right thing over the last couple of years, and I am glad that this place has been a haven of normalcy uh, for all of us. And, uh, So that's that. Um, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this marvelous text, this great gospel message that we're privileged to look at today. We ask that the same Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to write it will now illumine our minds and hearts to understand it and to embrace it. Use me, would you, in my frailty. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. On January 1st, 1863, Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which set free hundreds of thousands of former slaves in the rebel Confederate states. But historians tell us that many of them continued to live as slaves. That the change in legal status didn't make easy for them a change in lifestyle. That many of them had known nothing but slavery and couldn't imagine how they could make it with the risks of freedom. Some said, it's too late for me. I'll just stay with my old master. So even though slavery was abolished, it wasn't eliminated because so many slaves couldn't really embrace the freedom that they had been gifted with. Now I think if Paul himself were here this morning preaching on this, his greatest and most important epistle, he might use that as a sermon illustration. If you have been tracking with us in this sermon series, you might understand why I say that. Paul has been talking about new life in Christ how God in Christ has emancipated us from sin and death and our fruitless efforts to keep the law has given us new status as his children, his servants. But we don't always live as though we're free. We still serve the old master like some American slaves in the mid-1800s, we can't seem to embrace our new status. A pastor friend in Chicago pulled up at a stoplight, and in front of him was an interesting SUV. The uh, spare tire cover had a Texas Longhorns uh, logo, the big orange steer head, the trailer hitch had another steer head emblem. The license plate frame said University of Texas at the top and Longhorns uh, at the bottom. Uh, but what was strange was that that frame was bolted to an Illinois license plate. Here's somebody who had moved to Illinois, lived in Illinois, but was not about to change his loyalties. 
And I think, in a way, what Paul said in last Sunday's text in the first half of Romans 6 was, reckon yourselves, reason, realize that you have moved from Texas to Illinois. Or, to use metaphors from last week's sermon, realize that you have moved from volume one of your life story to volume two. And you don't have to live in volume one any longer. Or you have taken the oath of allegiance to a new kingdom, a new regime, and you're not obligated to obey the old anymore. Realize that you have died as far as your old master, sin, is concerned. And now in the second half of Romans 6, Paul continues and develops this theme, but he leaves behind the imagery of death and life and concentrates on the slavery image. So let's uh, learn more about this new life of freedom in Christ. Look with me at verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. An echo of verse 1 of this chapter, where once again, the apostle anticipates a possible misunderstanding, voices it, and then answers it. In this case, he's afraid that people might misunderstand what he said in verse 14, you're not under law, but under grace. Well, does that mean that we can now sin with impunity? Does liberty from law mean license to sin? And Paul's answer is as emphatic as his Greek will allow. By no means. God forbid. No, no, never, never. Ooh, uh, uh. Don't you know, verse 16, that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Our knowledge of slavery is probably limited to the kind violently imposed. Black Africans kidnapped and shipped across the Atlantic to the New World. Sudanese Christian girls kidnapped and sold into sexual slavery in the Muslim world. And so this language of offering yourself as a slave sounds strange to us. But in the first century, it wasn't uncommon for a man to indenture himself if he saw no other way to make a living. He would offer himself as a slave to a master, figuring that at least he would have a roof over his head and food in his belly. And Paul says, when you offer yourselves to serve sin, don't imagine that you're exercising Christian liberty. You're a slave. It's still servitude, even if no one kidnapped you at knife point and dragged you into your current status. You're a slave now. And, he might add, the longer you serve as a slave, the harder you may find it to break free. Certainly that was true for some Civil War era slaves. Too late for me, they said. Can't imagine life any other way. And one way you sometimes see this 
principle at work, this principle that the longer you serve sin, the harder it is to break free. One way you see that sometimes among Christians is when they embrace an identity other than their identity in Christ. They identify with their sin problem. Let me illustrate. Instead of saying, I'm a Christ follower who sometimes craves human approval, we say, I'm codependent. I got a label, an identity. Instead of saying, I'm a Christian who sometimes battles depression, we say, I'm a depressed person. Instead of saying, I'm a Christian who often fails, but by the grace of God gets up again, we say, I'm a loser. Instead of saying, I'm a Christian who continues to struggle with lust, we say, I'm a porn addict or I'm a homosexual. In other words, we get a label, we get an identity, and that, that becomes our identity instead of living out of our identity as Christians who still battle sin, but when we embrace that other identity of helpless defeat, it's a form of slavery. So, continuing verse 16, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Notice that there's no middle ground. In Paul's view, there are only two kinds of people in the world. There are slaves to sin, and there are slaves to God. And don't imagine that you can play at neutral and be free of either. To not be a servant of God is to be a servant of sin. To not love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind is the very essence of slavery to sin. But thanks be to God, verse 17. <laughs> Paul's encouraged about his readers. He doesn't think that they have given themselves up to sin slavery. Thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Yeah, that expression, the form of teaching, is an odd phrase that gives New Testament scholars something to talk about. Uh, the basic thrust of this couple of verses is clear. The Roman Christians had made a decisive break from their old allegiance, and with all their heart, they had placed themselves under the gracious lordship of God. They might have sung, Oh, happy day that fixed my choice on thee, my Savior and my God. Except that that hymn was written centuries later and they didn't speak English. <laughs> Frederick Douglass grew up as a slave in Maryland in the early 19th century and had experienced slavery's worst. He was taken from his mother while he was still an infant. For most of his boyhood, all he had to eat was a kind of a thin runny cornmeal dumped into a trough that he had to fight with other kids to get uh, enough to fill his belly. He worked in the hot fields from before sunrise to after sunset. He was often beaten till blood ran down his back. He dreaded attempting to escape because he reasoned if he failed, he'd never have another chance. 
condemning himself to slavery forever. But one day, he writes in his autobiography, I left my chains and succeeded in reaching New York without the slightest interruption of any kind. I've been frequently asked how I felt when I found myself in a free state. It was a moment of the highest excitement I have ever experienced. I felt like one who had escaped a den of hungry lions. Free! Do we feel anything of the excitement of that? What do you feel when you sing, my chains are gone, I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. Freedom. Now, if any of this talk of slavery bothers you, it probably should, at least for American Christians, because American slavery was the worst, most degrading form of racism, the fruits of which are still with us today. And it may be that the slavery language bothered Paul himself a little bit, because in verse 19 he sort of half apologizes for, for using it. Uh, I put this, he says, in human terms, because you're weak in your natural selves, or because of your human limitations. Slavery is so degrading that it doesn't seem like an ideal metaphor for our relationship to God. Jesus himself said to his followers, I don't call you servants, I call you my friends. But Paul says that in our human weakness, we grope for language that expresses something deep and true and important. We need analogies, imperfect, yes, but striking analogies to say what has to be said. I put this, all this slavery talk in human terms because you're weak in your natural selves, and continuing in verse 19, just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. Your feet that used to take you in places where you ought not go, let them now follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Your hands that used to get you into trouble, now use them to serve God and other people. Your mouth that used to speak blasphemy and lies and gossip and slander, now used to praise God and bless others and proclaim the gospel. Verse 20, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. Back in volume one of your life, before you died to sin, you had a master, sin. You didn't have to listen to righteousness, that was somebody else's master. Now, what Paul doesn't spell out here, but which is clearly implied, is that now that you're a slave to God, you don't have to listen to the old master anymore. Old master doesn't get to tell you what to do. Ah, but boy, that old master may be hard to forsake. May be hard to forsake. New York Times reporter Nicholas Kristof bought the freedom of two Cambodian prostitutes. He did a little research, found out how to do it, found a couple who were 
held against their will, who were willing to tell their story, who were young. And as he tells it, um, the first woman was relatively easy to set free. For $150, he walked out of the brothel with the girl and a receipt so she could go back to her village. Second, not so easy, partly because the brothel owner haggled over the price. He wanted more money, and uh, as Christoph tells it, after uh, a period of haggling, uh, we settled on $203. But then uh, the girl uh, said that she had pawned her um, cell phone for $55 and couldn't leave without her cell phone. And Christoph said, forget your cell phone. We've got to get you out of here. But she began to weep uncontrollably. And he said, look, you've got to choose between your cell phone and freedom. And so she went back into her little room and locked the door. And her friends, other prostitutes, were banging on the door and talking to her. Be reasonable. Even the brothel owner said, you ought to take this chance while you have it. But she wouldn't stop crying and come out until Christoph agreed come up with the $55 to get her cell phone back. And then she said that she had pawned jewelry that she wanted to be part of the deal. Sin can be hard to leave. Really hard to leave. And so, in the concluding lines of this chapter, Paul reasons with us. Verse 21. What benefit did you reap at that time? from the things you're now ashamed of. Those things result in death. What benefits did you reap when serving sin? A cell phone? Come on. Pawn jewelry? Come on. Fancier, expensive lifestyle? Bragging rights for ladders you've climbed? Sexual conquests? 15 minutes of fame? These are baubles that sin lets you have to make you think you're happy while what you're earning is death. Do you see that? Verse 16, slavery to sin leads to death. Verse 21, these things result in death. Verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Maybe physical death. One physician estimates that 80% of the patients he sees come to him not because some bacteria has invaded their body, but because of lifestyle choices. Sometimes our sinful choices can exact a physical penalty. Maybe eternal death if you don't repent. And even those who end up in heaven may experience a kind of death in this life Dryness, fruitlessness, loss, forfeiture of the fullness of life as God intended it to be. Paul says, if you choose to serve sin, let me tell you, you won't like payday. Serving God, that's another story. Verse 22. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap 
leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. A taste for the things of God. Enjoying the sense of God's smile on your life. Being able to sleep at night with a clear conscience. Seeing sin for what it is and, and learning to, to hate it. Little by little becoming more like Jesus. All this in heaven too. leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. We could spend a whole sermon on that one phrase. Life, eternal life, is a result of holiness. The Bible makes it clear that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You have to be holy to go live with God forever. But that doesn't mean that you can earn life by your efforts to become holy Several years ago, Warren Buffett, at the time the second richest man on the planet, announced that he was going to donate 85% of his $44 billion fortune to charity. And commenting on this extraordinary level of generosity, Buffett said, there's more than one way to get to heaven, but this is a great way. Well, I hope that in the years since or before it's too late, Buffett will learn that there's only one way to get to heaven and it's not buying your way there. In one breath, Paul says that life is a result of happiness and in the next, a verse that every Awana clubber learns, <laughs> Paul says it's a gift. The gift of God is eternal life. You receive it with empty hands. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. Life is a gift. And so is the prerequisite. Holiness. God graciously gives us, works in us, what he demands of us. He makes us holy. Not instantaneously. None of us are all the way there when we take our final breath and go to the presence of the Lord, but gradually, little by little, as we live out our identity as servants of God, he makes us holy, fit for heaven. Are you living out your identity as a servant, a slave of God? Or do you still, like the girl in Nicholas Kristof's story, feel the pull to the old master. He writes, I have purchased the freedom of two human beings so I can return them to their villages. But will emancipation help them? Or will they, like some other girls rescued from sexual servitude, find freedom so unsettling that they slink back to slavery in the brothels. We'll see. <laughs>